Um, thank you, guys. Is it possible to pull up that last, um, just that last slide from that, that last hymn, if that's okay? You know, if Peter couldn't have known, um, you can't know sometimes how appropriate songs are in the season of a church, but just uh, for a church hurting, what wonderful words. Soon shall pass my, soon shall close my earthly mission. Swift shall pass my pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. Amen. And what a wonderful joy for Ken. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to James chapter 1. going to be looking in particular at verses 22 to 25 today, but I want to read um, from verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray. Our Father, we come again as your sheep into this place. Maybe some of us a little battered and bruised. And yet we come again to your word, which is so precious to us, and which is what we need for life. And we ask again that you would help us to love your word, that sitting underneath it, your Holy Spirit would reign among us, and that you would fill us with your spirit and give us the commitment we need to be obedient to your word today. Amen. Pastor Chuck Swindle once wrote a book, Improving Your Swing, and in that book he shared in a, a pretty comic way the point that James makes in this passage. Now that book was written decades ago, and so I've adapted the illustration a little bit for modern ears. Pretend you work as an executive assistant in a company that is growing rapidly, and the owner is interested in expanding the company, and he wants to create a branch overseas. So he makes plans to go for six to eight months with his family to get this new branch established in a different country, and he leaves you in charge of the busy organization at home. He says he'll send to you directions. Emails will come with instructions of what to do. He leaves, and you stay, and months go by. A steady flow of emails come in that you receive, in which he spells out his expectations for you. And finally, after months, he returns, and soon after he lands, 
uh, from the airport, he, he drives down to the branch, to HQ, and he's stunned when he gets there. As he's driving in, he sees the grass and the weeds have grown higher and higher up the walls, and the windows facing the street are all broken. He walks into the, the office, and the receptionist ignores him. She's doing her nails. She's chewing gum. She's got her earphones, and she's listening to her phone. He sees the bins overflowing, and from the dust on the carpets, he can tell nobody's cleaned in a very long time, and no one seems too bothered by his entrance. He asks about your whereabouts, and somebody yells from the other side of the room, I think he's in his office. Disturbed, he walks in to find you finishing up a game of cards with the sales manager. Step into my office, he says to you. I need to find that his office has been turned into a cinema room for afternoon movies. What in the world is going on, man, he says to you. What do you mean, you reply. Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my emails? Emails? Yeah, sh sure, we got them all. In fact, we've had email study every Wednesday night since you left. We've even divided the staff into small groups and discussed many of the things that you wrote. Some of those things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have even memorized some of the lines and the phrase from, phrases from your emails. <coughs> and some of us have even memorized an email or two. Great stuff in those mails. Okay, you got my emails, you studied them, you meditated upon them, you discussed them and even memorized them, but what did you do about them? Do? Well, we did nothing about them. And we understand that that behavior is absurd. Professional suicide is what that is. But James's point is, is, is it any less absurd? If this is the Word of God, to approach it and to hear it without an urgent inclination to do what it says, to obey it. James knows that that behavior is actually possible, that it sometimes happens because our hearts are self-deceived. He made a point that we saw last week, that we are to live in relation to God in a lifestyle of meekness, especially in relation to His Word, the implanted Word, He calls it, that is able to save our souls. The Word is to be heard. It is to be studied and memorized and meditated upon. It's to be internalized as well. It's to be held up to different lights, to be gazed upon so that we can see its beauty, but it's to be received in joy and faith. And now James says more than that, with obedience as well. James 1 verse 22 might be the most famous verse in the book of James, and it might be the very heart of the letter. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Profession of faith must turn into action. Theology has to turn into practice. We see that this is a message throughout the book of James. Faith must lead to deeds, chapter 2 says. Those who are wise must show it by their lives, chapter 3. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it sins, chapter 4. And today we have another opportunity. We come and we sit under the Word of God again. And like the analogy that James employs in this passage, 
this passage is going to serve as a mirror for you today that you can hold up and look into and analyze your life. And the question today is very, very simple. Are you living in obedience to Christ? Are you obeying Him in your life? When I studied this passage, I saw three points of discussion around the topic of obedience and realized very late in the game that I had to split this into two sermons. So we're going to leave verse 26 and 27 over for next week, the third point about obedience. And today we're just going to look at the first two. Number one, we see the importance of obedience. The importance of obedience. Now when we discuss obedience to God, we do rightly speak of God's sovereignty in our lives and we must rightly acknowledge our need of Him, that we need the Holy Spirit to help us in order to obey God. We cannot do anything good on our own. We need Him. But a good understanding of the sovereignty of God does not mean we see ourselves as passive in this process. James is emphasizing in this passage the active role that we must take as Christians in the Christian life. So we agree with what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2.13, that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. But we don't deny the verse just prior to that, Philippians 2.12, that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, James, we're going to see this more fully in chapter 2, is not here teaching what people often accuse him of teaching. He's not teaching a works righteousness that I have to earn my salvation by what I do. But he is emphasizing the one side of the coin, that we take an active role and we obey, and that is central to the Christian life. James takes his cue here, as he so often does, from Jesus himself. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, blessed, there's that word again, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it, who hear and keep. Now, Jesus preached the grace of God. Again and again, he made statements that are comfort, a comfort to sinners like you and me, to those who are, are burdened by their sinfulness. He said things like, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. He says to us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But he also preached as strongly a summons to radical obedience. He calls us to discipleship. We are to follow Him. We follow and we become like Him. He said things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Christian life calls for something from us. So James's statement is of central importance to our lives. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, what James does is he uses an analogy here in verses 23 to 25 to drive home this point, the, the importance of obedience. So let's look at this analogy together. Verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
So James sets up a contrast between two men in this passage, or two people in this passage, the one who looks at himself in the mirror and the one who looks intently into the law, the perfect law of God. Now, some com commentators say that the contrast is in the looking, the way that they look. Maybe the person who looked into the mirror just gave a, a cursory glance, and the other person looks more intently, but that's not actually to be found in the words. The words for look in this passage are not very different. They both mean to look carefully. Sometimes we can look carefully at the Word of God and still not put it into practice for some or other reason. Rather, the contrast that James sets up here is a contrast of result, what happens after the looking. So the value of having a mirror is that it reveals your physical state. You can look into a mirror and see what might be wrong with that physical state and remedy that before you go out into the world. You can fix your messed up hair in the morning. Or you could maybe see the mustard stain you have from that hot dog you ate and change your shirt before you go out into the world. Not the man in James's illustration. We don't know why, perhaps he's already late for work, but for whatever reason, he gives a, a glance to this mirror, he sees perhaps and says, oh well, but then goes out and forgets all about it. For the mirror is for seeing, but the mirror is not the face cloth, the mirror is not the razor, the mirror is not going to change your shirt for you. And in James's illustration, this man's problem is the problem of forgetting. That's his key failure. It's one glance in the morning, and I go out, and it's not related. That mirror is not related to the rest of my day. And this is the, one of the big themes of the Bible when it comes to the Word of God, the theme of forgetting and remembering. So throughout the Old Testament, you go and look at the, the language there, and Israel is warned again and again about forgetting God's mighty acts, forgetting what God has done to save and rescue and redeem. They're told to remember Remember His mercies. Remember His law. Remember His law. We see that again and again. Scripture is speaking about a relationship to the Word whereby the Word has a, a lasting impression on your heart and your mind. The one who forgets is the one who perhaps keeps the Word at arm's length, who, who only allows it to come into life at surface level. The message there hasn't made a deep impact on heart and soul. James's analogy is quite genius, I think, in using the analogy of a mirror. Because there's a link between mirror and word, isn't there? What does a mirror do? A mirror is there to reveal what we are like. And, and in the same way, this is how God's word acts. It's, it, it, it's like a mirror to our souls. For the power of the Holy Spirit, we can come to the Word and we are promised that it is all that we need for life and godliness. But there must be a, a looking in. There must be a revelation that we act on there. There's another similar, similar analogy in the New Testament in reference to the Word of God in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4. Remember what it is? Hebrews 4 verse 12 calls the Word a, a double-edged sword, Right? So if you read it, and you read it rightly, it cuts back at the same time. It challenges, it provokes, it confronts us. Someone has said, when you read the Bible, it reads you. That's a good reading of Scripture. Sam Albury, in his commentary, tells a story about a woman whose brother became a Christian. And she was very concerned for him and worried about him. 
So she picked up the Bible and opened to the uh, Gospel of Mark and just began to read to see what her brother had gotten himself into. What has he gotten himself into? For her, it was just an exercise in gaining information. But it was not long until she discovered as she was reading that actually the gospel was gaining info on her. She felt like it was scrutinizing and exposing her, laying bare her heart and her motives. And yet she couldn't put it down, couldn't keep it at arm's length. And it was not long, Aubrey says, before she herself became a Christian. The Bible, she realized, is just like a mirror. She is like the second person in James's analogy, the one who pours over the word in a way that makes a lasting impression. It's an interesting word. The word in your ESV translated looks into has a basic meaning of just to stoop down. That's what the word means. But it came to mean to, to stoop down in order, or to, to look by bending over. You see something on the floor and you want to look closely at what that is. That's what this word means. It's used in John 20, in, in the Gospel of John, where Mary stooped to look into the tomb. It was a look that would ultimately change her life forever. See, this man who looks into the perfect law and perseveres, he doesn't forget what he sees. That word for perseveres more literally means he continues, as in he continues with it. Alec Matia puts it this way, he continues in the company of the Word. That's the point that James is making. He carries it with him. He bears it in his heart. Some may look every day into the Word, may look once into the Word like looking into a mirror and forget what they have read. It may be a looking that where they look into the, the Word, but it does, doesn't have any bearing on the rest of their day or doesn't have any bearing on their life. Others live in a regular pattern of listening. They come to church week in and week out and sit, sit under the ministry of the Word. They probably, or maybe even leave saying, what a great sermon that was, but the truth is there was no rub between the Word and their life, no change, no transformation. Others search intently into the Word in order to teach other people, and sometimes not letting it saturate mind and heart, not obeying what it says. It's possible even to be a teacher of the Word without obeying it. They deceive themselves, James says. And of all the kinds of deception, is there a deception worse than this? Listen, it's why Scripture gives this as a clearest test. Or if you want to know, am I right with God? This is the test that Scripture gives again and again and again. Do you obey? Do you obey? Not perfectly. We will sin until the day that we die. But is the pattern of your life to follow and to obey Jesus Christ? Jesus couldn't have made it simpler in John 14, 15. If you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is simple. Now, while speaking of the importance of obedience, James would want us to see, I believe, something else as well in verse 25. So let's turn to verse 25 again and see the blessing of obedience. The blessing of obedience. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. 
So what is it that causes us to know what is good from God's Word and then not to obey it? What causes us to know the right that we are to do and then not to do it? We sin sometimes and it's because in a moment we believe that there is something better than the good that He has laid out for us. That there is something more satisfying than the life that He offers We don't do good sometimes because we fear the earthly ramifications of that obedience. If I obey Christ, it's going to be too costly, and I don't want to pay that price. And so we do not obey. Instead of the truth, we lie to protect ourselves. Instead of being generous and frugal with our money, we hoard or we waste. Instead of sharing the gospel, Instead of sharing the gospel, we keep it to ourselves because we fear the implications, the the cost. Look at how James changes the language a little bit here when he speaks of the Word of God. He hasn't changed the topic. From verse 18 to now, he's talking about the same thing. He called it the Word of Truth there. In verse 21, it's the implanted Word. In verses 22 and 23, he just calls it the Word. But here in verse 25, he says the perfect law, the law of liberty. James can refer to the Word of God as the law of God interchangeably. Why or how? What is he doing? He sounds a lot in this passage, by the way, like the psalmist, Psalm 119, which opens with this word again, blessed. Verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And then the psalmist goes on to speak about how wonderful this law is. And he uses different terminology. He says his testimonies, his ways, his precepts, his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and finally his word, all of it interchangeably. The psalmist's attitude and James' attitude is this, that the word of God, all of it, whatever segment you come to, whatever part you come to, it demands a response from you. It stands over your life, whether that's the prophets or the poetry, whether it's it's letters or narrative, whatever genre or form it takes, it demands a response of repentance and faith. You come to the Word of God seeking to know who God is, and when you come like that, you come with the attitude, how should this affect my attitude? How should it affect my thinking and my behavior? And James says his law is what? Is perfect. His perfect law. It is perfect. It always has been. And it's perfect because it perfectly expresses God's nature. That's what we can believe and trust about his law. Look at what God says over and over again. For example, when he's giving the law to Israel, what does he say again and again? He says, I am the Lord your God. That's the implication behind the giving of the law. And he says, be holy because I am holy. The point is that God doesn't just speak arbitrarily. He doesn't suck rules and commandments out of His thumb. What He gives to us is perfect because it it reflects who He is. And we are to be shaped by who He is revealed in what He has spoken. Think about the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. And people rail against the law of God. They say, how can God be so demanding of us? How can he be so controlling? They they see his law as arbitrary and how he's placed it over our lives. But the truth is this. 
who He is is just expressed in a way that we are to live in His commandments. So come to the Ten Commandments. He says, do not murder, right? Now that one we actually do understand. We don't really rail against that command. But why does God say to us, do not murder? It's because He's a God of life. Because life is precious to Him. He's the God who gives life. I love an illustration of this in the, the book of Jonah. Jonah's called to go to Nineveh to preach to a people who are far from God, and, and Jonah is kicking and screaming at first. He wants to go in the opposite, opposite direction, and it takes a shipwreck and a giant fish to set him finally on a course that is right. But he goes into the city, and he preaches. He preaches begrudgingly, and that whole city turns. They repent. Most effective sermon ever, except for maybe Peter's, I suppose, on the day of Pentecost. But then he complains to God. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And I love God's words to Jonah at the end of the book. Should I not pity? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Jonah, people are precious to me. Their lives are precious do not commit adultery, he says. Why? It's because God is totally and eternally faithful to his covenant promises. He never breaks a promise. Do not steal. Why? Because God is generous and kind. He gives good gifts to people. Do not bear false witness. Why? Because God is truthful in everything he says. Do not covet. Why? Because God provides what you need. Because He is the all-satisfying one. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Now, our culture rails against that command, don't they? What gives God the right to demand worship from me? Why is He so petty like that? What gives Christ the right to come and say that there is no other way to the Father except through me? It's because He's the all-majestic beautiful, righteous, good one. It's because He made us in His image. He made us to worship Him. And our greatest good is to be near to Him. That's why He gives His command. This is the point I'm trying to make. That every page is grace to us. Every single word He's spoken is love to us. Not for harm. Every commandment is love. It is perfectly suited to human life. And the life lived close to his law is the life of blessing. That's why James calls it, I believe, the law of liberty. The law of liberty. It's a striking phrase, isn't it? Many would call that an oxymoron. Law and freedom, they don't go together, do they? I remember my time of teaching, speaking to a group of teenagers. I think it was a context of a devotional. One of the girls who had grown up in a Christian home um, said to me something along these lines, I just, I just want to be free to live my life for myself, to experience life and not to have to worry about all the rules that my parents have placed over me. I want to be free. This is a common way of thinking about freedom in our world. It's the absence of restriction, isn't it? When you impose rules and boundaries, when you uh, put restrictions in place, that's, that's a suppressing of freedom, isn't it? That's not how the Bible sees it. 
The Bible defines freedom not as the absence of all constraints, but the existence of of the constraints that lead to life. That is true freedom. Those constraints that are intended to give life. I found this analogy quite helpful. If you take a fish out of water, if you free the fish from the water, are you really giving extra freedom or giving freedom to that fish? No, you're, you're killing it, aren't you? It's by design, it was made for water. It was not meant to live apart from water. So freedom from water might be the removal of particular constraints, but it means death for the fish. So if you think you're freeing the fish, you've totally misunderstood freedom. And it's the same with us. We are made for God. We were made to worship Him. We were made to live close to Him in in relationship with Him. We live in a society, don't we, that rejects the kind of God who would command, who would place constraints upon us. And you see how how society is going at the moment. Because we think that we know ourselves best. We think we know what would lead to life. I know what leads to my own blessing and joy and happiness. The truth is we are lost in darkness. And the truth is, even as Christians, aren't we prone to a struggle Sometimes when it comes to obedience to God, we struggle to trust, and that's why obedience is difficult at times. We're like Israel. I know I've used this illustration or this analogy of Israel in the wilderness quite a few times in my preaching recently, but we are. We're like Israel in the wilderness. They are people who had been set free from slavery in Egypt. They are the redeemed ones, the called out, set apart ones. And it's to these people, these freed people, that God speaks some of the most precious words in all of Scripture in Exodus 19. Verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Can there be anything greater said to a group of people? I bore you on wings to myself. So he gives this law to them, not as a means of them earning salvation, not as a means of bondage for them, but taking them out of bondage into life. This is what the blessed life of the redeemed looks like. And yet it's not long before Israel and the wilderness are complaining with bitter words. Take us back. Take us back to Egypt. Why did you bring us into the wilderness to die here? It sounds shocking, doesn't it? But that is the seed of sin, often in our own hearts. Now remember, James is writing to a people who feel battered and bruised for following Christ. And that is a reality. There are going to be times where obedience to Christ is going to hurt, where it's going to cost. And you think sometimes when... When things are not going well, there's the temptation just to give up. What am I doing this all for? Why am I following? And the asking seems too much, and the obedience is costly. That's the struggle in our hearts, that struggle of trust. Why have you brought me into the wilderness to die here? Is that in your heart today? Maybe you are not a Christian. Maybe you are keeping God at arm's bay because you're not sure that he's trustworthy. You don't know that Christ is is worth the life of sacrifice. 
in following Him. There is a truth to that. Christ said to us, count the cost, didn't He? He said to us, count the cost. But for those who know Him, they know that He is worth it. Maybe you are a Christian and there's something in your life that you have been called to obey about, but you have been holding that obedience off because you know the cost is going to be great. You're not sure that He will be enough for you in the doing. This is the promise for the doer of the word. When it's hard, when it takes sacrifice, when you know that obeying is going to set you back, He will be blessed in His doing. He will be blessed in His doing. Can we trust this promise? I was going, we're going through a, a series with the young adults on Sunday nights. Um, if you're a young adult, by the way, you're welcome to join our young adults ministry Sunday nights. We, we're going through a series by John Piper, short video series on Psalm chapter one, and it makes exactly the same promise as James makes in this passage. Did you know the first word in the book of Psalms is the word blessed? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. And I was speaking to them, and I said, sometimes it's hard for me to um, trust this promise. Sometimes it's hard to trust this promise, and all he does, he prospers. And the reason it's hard for me is because I don't always obey. The reason it's hard is because I sin. And when I, I do, I, I wonder, could this promise actually be for me? Could it be for me? Could God really be for me? Does he really love me? Does he really want what is best for me? Well, if that's you today, if that's the question in your heart, are these promises of blessing and promises of, of prosper, prosperity, by the way, is, is living close to God? It doesn't mean that life is always going to be easy or the path is always going to be calm, but it does mean that whatever you go through, He's there with you. He's with you in the trouble and He's with you at the end of it. That's real prosperity. That's the prosperity gospel the Bible rarely teaches. But if you wonder, because of your struggle with sin, what you can do with me today is lift your eyes again to Jesus Christ. He is the one who obeyed 100%. He's the one who in everything he did was obedient to the Father and he went to the cross in obedience to God for you and for me. He gave his life. He's washed away my sins. I stand before God. I don't stand before God based on what I've done. I don't stand before him based on my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ is given to me as a gift. And on that ground, I stand before him. And on that ground, I know the promise is for me. His grace is greater than the mountain of my sin. And so though I'm weak, I know that he holds my life. And even though I fail at times, he is a good shepherd who does not give up and who leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let's pray. Father, we just ask a simple prayer this morning. And our prayer is this, that you would help us to trust in you. That you would fill our hearts with a joy that comes from being close to you. 
Help us to taste and to see that you are good. And that when life is difficult and obedience is, is difficult and requires sacrifice, give us the joy of knowing that you are the all-satisfying one and that you make it all worth it. Oh Lord, I, I pray now that you would help us, that you would pinpoint in people's hearts right now those areas where perhaps there has been disobedience before. We ask for your forgiveness for our disobedience, and we ask that you would help us to obey. Pray that you would bring those things to the fore, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal that the word would be like a mirror to our souls and that you would grow your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.